Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi there and welcome to this episode of Cross Section. I got feedback from the last time I was on saying that I need to say my name more often on this podcast. So in case anyone is wondering, my name is Jo Evans and today I'm recording this podcast in the stationery cupboard at the Evangelical Alliance office in London. We're going to look at three stories across news and culture from the last week and work out what difference the good news of Jesus makes in these conversations. This week, we're diving straight in and um, I want to talk about Lewis Capaldi. Now, Danny, Alicia, Peter, I I wonder which of you might be the biggest Capaldi fan. Uh, Well, I... I I first heard of him yesterday and I first listened to his music approximately 15 minutes ago. I've, I've been down by a few days. At least I've heard of him. I did watch the video today that we're, we were talking about, but I had heard of him before that. That's very impressive. So Lewis Capaldi, as I'm sure most of our listeners will know, is currently the UK top 40 number two. He was number one the previous week with his song Forget Me which is a really great song. I'm really enjoying it. I am, as I'm sure my counterparts do, I listen to Radio 1 on a regular basis and it's on there a lot at the moment. It's a really good song. Um, But I have been interested noticing his his marketing campaign around this song has been Lewis Capaldi, a lovely Scottish man, laid out on his side, think, paint me like one of your French girls, in a pair of tighty whities and is that the official term I'm not sure I'm going to carry on and and he's sort of been saying all over his social media I'm doing this because sex sells he he's being he's looking to he's a he's got he's a guy who makes a lot of self-deprecating jokes he's a very funny man and the idea being that he's not got what society might deem the most typically beautiful body but it, got, it has got us thinking about this idea uh, that sex sells and how in the music industry in recent years, it's gone from an innuendo to very explicit content. Peter, I know you were thinking about this recently on a run. What, what was going on with you? I was. So I, I confess I normally listen to podcasts. I am now struck that this is possibly the first time that Tighty Whiteys has ever been said on an EA podcast. <laughs> I really didn't think about saying that in a more sterilized way. I now regret <laughs> that. But People now understand why you were dropped last week and why when you don't appear next week, that might be the reason. Anyway, so I was running, I was running and I got new trainers and I wanted to run fast and I, put, I thought I'd put on music. I went to Spotify, top 100 running songs put it on and started running and I was like oh my goodness what what am I listening to and I kept going and actually kept running faster and faster until I had to stop around too fast but I was just shocked at what was coming up on that list so much talk about booties I can't believe all the things we're going to mention now it's just like dirty stuff like menage a three which was just confusing because I couldn't even complete it in French it was like stuff about paying for sex about shackling and locking and like different things about that the degrading language the innuendo and as you say it wasn't just innuendo it was explicit there's one line at the end that kind of got me our baby making bodies we just use for fun until every piece is gone and it was both kind of like oh so true because i kind of went back and reviewed some of the lyrics because as i ran i was going this stuff's insane and this is the standard 100 top run tunes so it definitely had a beat that i ran faster i was really i guess i was so surprised at how explicit how degrading, how sexualized, how violent the lyrics were. 
maybe I shouldn't have been, but it definitely struck me as I ran. I think I, I'm kicking myself that I can't remember who it's by. So if any of our listeners, if this rings any bells, please get in touch. I read an article, it will have been a couple of years ago, talking about how it was focusing particularly on female artists and how these these female artists that would sort of categorise themselves or, or ha- know that they have a broad appeal to young listeners. So Ariana Grande was an example that was used. She has a huge field of young listeners, like girls, pre, pre-pubescent girls. And yet she's someone who has extremely sexually explicit content. And that, that kind of thing of, of weighing up, I guess... I guess it's kind of this movement of, of sexual empowerment, but also that there's a responsibility there if you know that young children essentially are listening to you. Yeah, that, that people people absorb the music that they listen to and what do we really want? I sound so old and stuffy, but what do we want young people to be to be learning? Yeah, Alicia, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I definitely would say that our culture is somewhat inconsistent in their messaging and somewhat confused when it comes to sex and I say that as when we were talking about Louis Capaldi I know of him by name but I don't know of his work it came to mind of another artist that recently released a song his name's called H is uh, a UK grime artist from the north of England I think it's Manchester based on his accent and he produced a song called Learning Curves and it's a uh, a story and a video that's incredibly confused but there's a graphic in an image where he's laying down and there's kind of like an aerial shot of six I think six seven other women who are somewhat of the larger size they are in just white underwear and he in his video is talking about a whole range of issues it starts with big women and then it ends with him dating two other women, one from he takes from a wedding and another one he takes out for dinner. Anyway, there was a huge backlash online where they were like, this video, the main complaint of the video was that he should be using slim women who are half naked in the video rather than the content itself that there are semi-naked women uh, in this music video. And he pushed back by saying, actually, in somewhat graphic language was but was basically saying these women who are who are bigger in size they're beautiful they are to be celebrated uh any man who is kind of pushing back and saying that I should use slim women are confused and yet the messaging is inconsistent it's weird he's using sexual imagery somewhat a lot of nudity a lot of nakedness promoting quite a promiscuous lifestyle and that's okay but the culture pushes back on whether it should be bigger women or whether it should be slimmer women rather than the principle should women be on screen and H is someone that has a following uh, in its millions engaged with kind of the Gen Z culture and yet it's a very mixed messaging on that so I think our culture is somewhat confused on that. Is this though is it just a, a kind of new morality so you have the body positive uh, movement and that is the thing that matters that's the thing that society reacts to and holds the values around rather than around the sexualization. So it's not that mm. there aren't values, it's just what those values are. Like I, I was struck that like, the most obvious one is the Hannah Montana to the Miley Cyrus transition. It's the kind of mm. uh, Disney star through to the sex symbol. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the image we all have in our minds, yeah. But, that's the, but there is that kind of... Uh, squeaky clean 
image actually and then transitioning into a, a different image. So I think you've definitely seen that. And that's not that new, but I think it has got more extreme. I also think that the sexualized and graphic lyrics aren't new, but I think they've become more explicit. Like I certainly look back at music that I listened to when I was younger and I look back at some of the lyrics and think, oh, I didn't necessarily understand what that lyric meant, but that's because it was euphemistic or innuendo-led or tied up in certain ways that actually it's not quite so graphic. So I think it's, it's important not to be too, uh, oh, isn't it awful now, but mm. actually also recognise the challenges that we do face now. Yeah. And I definitely got some feedback. So I tweeted some of these lyrics and definitely some people saying that, look, it's always been a bit like this. It's maybe become a bit more explicit. And you can change some settings on that. And there's some practical things. But I was also listening then to a podcast where Louise Perry, who is the author of a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. I think this was with Andrew Sullivan, this one. But she talked about the music lyrics and the twerking and how obviously it become and how it's often female artists doing it, but potentially somewhat unaware of the world of which they've entered and what they're doing. I mean, she's fascinating. She's been picked up. So she's a she would call herself a material feminist. Feminist. She writes for New Statesman, and she's coming at this and saying uh, the case against the sexual revolution is it's basically a failed woman. I mean, just to give a couple of her chapter headings gives a sense of where she's coming from. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent's not enough. Violence isn't love. And she ultimately concludes that marriage is good. And lots of Christians are kind of intrigued by it. She's not coming from a biblical perspective, but she's saying very similar things and again, pushing into the space. So this is one where we align with feminists and many others who say, hold on, we're not just being prudish. This is actually deeply unhelpful. And I'm saying this and I was probably most shocked because I was thinking, well, what are my daughters listening to? Mm. Not that because we've got the settings on Spotify, but I was still going, but what is in the culture and in the water that they're swimming in? Like it's hugely sexualized set of lyrics. So it was great to hear someone like Louise Perry say, no, that's really unhelpful. Sexual revolutions field, woman and all of us in the bar that is now setting. And actually to hear other people interview and engage in that. And I think, again, this is where this gets interesting for me on the cross-section pieces. We're sitting at the intersection of some really interesting framing around this conversation. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've not read her book, but I've definitely followed Louise Perry's commentary on the Gospel Coalition. They wrote an article about it, her engagement recently with Katie Balls on The Spectator. I think what I find helpful about her contribution to the conversation is that she's quite clear, even though she's not coming from a Christian angle, that what the sexual revolution did in the 50s and 60s is it made it very explicit that it wanted to push out any form of Christian sexual ethic in culture. And I think for someone who isn't coming from the church or a Christian point of view or making the case of, of all that's come after that, I think it's quite refreshing for the culture to hear from somewhat of its own community to be like, this has not been a good thing. Now there's points of disagreement with what she's written uh, and how she speaks, particularly about how the positives of the sexual revolution is the conversation of my body, my choice, uh, and kind of the abortion activism and movement from that. But there are other parts that she really does challenge uh, in, in talking about that, that I find quite refreshing and a point of engagement in that. Yeah, I think it just reminds me how... Oh, the world's just so broken, isn't it? I know it's the most obvious statement ever, but I think when we look at things like ultimately the view the view of women that we're seeing in these sexualized lyrics, it's not just a case of... So, so where we are now in this sort of uh, 
sexual freedom to the extreme was kind of out of response to what was seen as sexual oppression pre pre the sexual revolution and then as Christians we kind of go okay we don't want the the over sexualization that we have now but also the way women were oppressed and it was sort of um, women were sexual objects in the home we don't want that either and it's just like we're peeling off these different over responses and layers of broken history in in the of the viewing of women and it takes a lot of work to get back to how did God actually design things to be because we know that God has a good design and what was that what what is it where women aren't oppressed where we're not where they're not being exploited but a good view of sex and sexuality in God's good design I'm sure there's a lot more we could say on that but we're gonna plow on we're gonna do a little politics roundup now there's been some big things going on recently and there's been some things that we've not covered the last couple of weeks because of being at our evangelical alliance council where we were talking about racial justice the week before obviously there was the huge story of the queen so what's been going on in the world of politics danny i want to come to you first well, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on the the mini budget, as it was dubbed, that took place last week. Uh, it was mini because it wasn't actually a budget; uh, it was a fiscal event or a growth statement, depending on uh, which euphemism you want. But it was also the biggest raft of tax cuts since 1972. Uh, so the most substantial changes to our tax system in five decades. All of that outside of what is normally the regular budget rounds. In fact, there will be a budget on November the 23rd. But what was announced then had been kind of, obviously, the the politics of the new government was, there was a bit of a false start because of the Queen's death. And so much got rammed into a few days. Largely, what was announced were things that they had said they were going to do. And this is one of my takeaways, that actually... Liz Truss has largely done the things that she said she would do. There are a couple of additional uh, aspects that she's pulled out. But I think there's a lot of the surprise that they actually did it. And people are like, oh, I thought she was just throwing red meat to the Conservative faithful to, to win the election. And now she's actually done it. So the things that they've done, they've they've removed the increase on national insurance. So it's reduced everyone's uh bill who pays national insurance they've said that they will reduce income tax rates next year they have uh, removed the cap on bankers bonuses and then what they hadn't said that they would do they've removed the top rate of income tax so people earning over a hundred thousand pounds will not pay uh, an additional rate now they've also changed uh, stamp duty thresholds and so quite a wide range of measures of how they change the tax system what has attracted significant scrutiny is is that these changes benefit people who earn the most. The, the principle behind it is that it stimulates growth. This is the kind of classic uh, economic theory that says that if you allow people to make more money, it will generate jobs, generate income, and that will benefit the whole economy. That's the theory. Now they're putting it into practice in quite a quick uh measure there's been let's just say quite a lot of uh, destabilization in currency markets uh, in pension funds the bank of england has bought 65 billion pounds worth of debt to try and stabilize a pension market so there's quite a lot of uncertainty and quite a lot of concern about it but the government are determined this is what they're doing and they're plowing on peter ah uh, well 
Uh, yeah, and I mean, I think you, you've highlighted that, Danny. That's exactly it. The markets are a mess. Uh, it, it, even though she did what she said, it surprised people. But some of the responses to that, I mean, it, what are the implications for people on the ground? So the bit I want to pick up is a cost of living that we've talked about before. CAP, Christians Against Poverty, one of our members has responded to the budget. They, they had a survey out, I think it was done at the end of August, but saying, look, 84% of people have been affected by the cost of living crisis. That's not a surprise. One in three households are struggling. And so they've been responding to the budget, say, look, given the number of people who are so I think it's 15% of respondents were going without heating and electricity. That would equate to 15 million people. Another, uh, sorry, eight, yeah, 8 million people. And another 8 million are skipping a meal. Uh, and so people are making radical changes. They would acknowledge, I think, that the budget has tackled some of those in terms of some of the cost of living, but they don't think it was targeted enough. And their response is definitely worth reading. Uh, you can check that out from Christians Against Property, but about housing allowance in particular, the cost of housing going up around the energy company for those most in need. It's quite a blanket kind of set of proposals. And they are partners with us in the Warm Welcome uh, campaign. Again, looking at how churches can engage in this space and do something really practical in terms of offering places of welcome. So I think for us, yeah, we want to absolutely comment on the politics, but then the lived reality. And we don't yet know how all this is all going to land and work its way out. But it does feel there's ever increasing nervousness. I think my overall response is, again, the kind of just the... Uh, edginess around this we're not even talking about you know what's going on in ukraine and Nord Stream one and two and what happened to that pipeline questions there the new italian prime minister and then the state of play of the markets the mortgage markets pensions like people are nervous there's an edginess globally in this moment uh, and so again it's a moment for us just to take stock pray see where we can respond practically in the local situation so for us that's that that, that piece in the cost of living I'm really, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Peter, because as we do every week, this week we put out on socials a question for our listeners to engage with. This week we asked, what should the number one response of Christians in responding, what should be the number one response of Christians responding to the cost of living crisis? And we gave four options. We said to write to elected officials, host warm spaces, work with local services and evangelism. We're not saying that you should only be doing one of those things or whatever. That's just that's just how Twitter polls work. But interestingly, the highest, the the most common response was thirty one point three percent of people said we should be working with local services, followed very closely by hosting warm spaces. But I think it is a re- it's a really difficult time for the church to know how to respond practically. Not only because costs are going up for the church and the people members of the church costs are going up and they themselves are in financial crisis and yet we we are still called to love our neighbor sacrificially yeah it's a really tricky one again we'd love to know what people thought feel free to to respond to that twitter poll with a comment let us know what you think alicia other big stories in the news at the moment in regards to politics yeah, it's party conference season uh, and somewhat an opportunity it was over the weekend for the Labour Party to respond to the fiscal event uh, and most importantly, what they would do to support those in the cost of living crisis. And there's been a lot of conversation around Keir Starmer's speech, so much so that YouGov had a 17 point lead 
of the Labour Party over the Conservatives in response to uh, their engagement. I guess what I found interesting is it's the first time that Keir Starmer and the Labour Party have made an attempt to cast their vision of how they would engage in this moment, how they would lead policies, what they would do. Interestingly, he used the word hope eight times. So somewhat of the Labour Party wants to restore hope uh, into local communities, politics and public services. His primary audience, even though it's a party conference, he kept speaking quite a lot about working class and working people. Again, a phrase used over 30 times. And then tapping into somewhat of the weak points of the Conservative Party at this moment, talking about a need for clear leadership in uncertain times, a need the people wanting to be governed with integrity and to be united rather than divided, talking about how the Labour Party are prepared to make difficult choices. When questioned uh, on Laura Koonsberg channel on BBC on Sunday, he was somewhat reserved in being specific about what those difficult choices would be, but somewhat placing Labour uh, and, and the party as one who's ready for government. Um, I mean, time will tell in terms of how ready they are. But there was a lot of conversation around the, uh, the Labour Party building partnerships between government and business, a lot of conversations around home ownership, that the Labour Party would be alongside those who are wanting to get on the market, conversations about a green prosperity plan, just endless conversations of vision and somewhat of leaving a legacy of integral finances and fiscal strength and engaging the younger generation on key issues. So I guess this weekend, which is the Conservative Party conference, we will see how they will respond to what Labour has pitched. But at the moment, the Labour Party seem to be in a positive, definitely from a year ago, a more positive position. So it'd be interesting uh, how the weeks and months unfold. And what do you think, what, 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 do, what do Christians do with that in this moment? Like, as there's, there's always this hot conflict between particularly Labour and Conservative and and they're interesting ideas, right? Labour is giving something fundamental or offering something fundamentally very different. How do we continue to seek unity across differing ideals and ideas? I think it's important, actually, to have this conversation. We know of members within the team and definitely within the membership, some who are members of the Conservative Party, members of the Labour Party. But I think as Christians, it's important to remind ourselves and remember that the kingdom that God speaks of is completely countercultural to whatever political party or institution would seek to engage. And so whether on the left or the right, there's something of a role for you to play within that kind of small network of speaking kingdom principles and policies of how do we serve the poor? How do we have them in the forefront of our thinking? How do we uh, deal with debt and finances? How do we not just prayerfully consider, but continue to seek and serve those less fortunate than us? Whichever your politic preference, there's definitely a role for Christians in those space to speak up and to speak out uh, in that. So there's definitely one of engagement and Naturally, there'll be point of disagreement on policy of how to execute a kingdom perspective or a just society. But as Christians, we should always remember that we're united in Christ in that. And that should be our mm -hmm. foremost in that. 
Well, as I said before, you we would love you to be joining in this conversation. So you can follow us at EA UK News on Twitter, Evangelical Alliance on Instagram, and you can email us cross.section at eauk.org. And I'm delighted to say we have had an email. He just said, Pete, as an avid podcast listener, I've really enjoyed your new podcast. I haven't listened to all of them yet, but great stuff so far. So well done, Pete. Are you, are you often a Pete, Peter? Uh, no, no, but Fiverr's in the post for that thing. <laughs> so uh, there's been a, a story in sort of Christian news circles, particularly this week, about a Dr. Richard Scott. Danny, can you fill us in on the details? Yes, Dr. Richard Scott was, uh, well, he is a GP, and this week he has uh, reached an agreement over a complaint that was brought against him uh, over professional conduct because he has been praying and was accused of inappropriately talking about uh, his beliefs with patients. Now, it's a relatively long-running saga. There have been a number of different complaints uh, over the years, but effectively, he has continued to insist that he is operating within the professional guidelines that the NHS and the General Medical Council set out. There's been other complaints about him. He agreed to go on has agreed to go on a one-day training course as part of this agreement, but didn't. And this was one of the things he refused to do. He wouldn't go on a three-day course that had been. Uh, usually used in circumstances of gross professional misconduct. So this settlement has been reached and it has agreed that it is appropriate sometimes to talk about uh, spiritual matters in the context of work. Now, there's there are 101 nuances in different situations. So the question is, how do you do that appropriately? And it's important to do that appropriately. But in this context, uh, it was found that he wasn't doing anything uh, he wasn't guilty of any wrongdoing. When we hear these stories, I think Christians can have one or two responses. You either think, oh, great, someone's standing up for the Christian faith, or you think, oh, someone's being difficult and giving Christians a bad name, for want of a better term. Peter, how do you think we tackle how we tackle these things? Yeah, or I think process these things. You're absolutely right. We've got to keep them in context. So we know from talking Jesus that Christians speak to non-Christians. We know that from our experience, but we know the number of interactions. I think I calculated based on that research. There's at least 50 million gospel interactions going on. Uh, I think it's every week or every month. Like we're talking to our non-Christian friends so that the two or three stories that make it to the papers are the exception to the rule. So here's the reality. It's like literally a one in a million chance that your gospel conversation is going to find itself in the news and maybe you've crossed the line. And this case, as Danny said, is primarily about the fact that this doctor was entitled to bring his spiritual life, his faith into the workplace. And then there are just, as always, the boundaries of how appropriate that is. Uh, and I think this has really helpfully set those out. Uh, we've got to have the patient's consent or anybody in a workplace environment, we've got to have that. But the more we do it, the better place that we are. If we randomly one day after five years come in and suddenly start talking about Jesus, that's going to be a surprise. If we're doing this regularly, it's part of our general conversation about our importance in faith and life, then that's wonderful. And our work is supposed to be an act of worship. It's our Christian duty. It's, it's how we serve God. It is not expressly a place we go just to evangelize. All of our work, everything we do, 
doing it with integrity, doing it well as an act of service. It's something we've talked about before at EA. We have our speak up resources, talk more generally about it. But we also have my seamless queue, a trans, no, living for Jesus at work resource, the name of which I will remember, living for Jesus at work. Please tell me that's right, Joe Evans. You are the primary author, so I should, I'm going to pass the ball across to you. What an introduction. Yeah, that's right. The living for Jesus at work resource. That's something that we've been working on for almost an entire year but it's just been launched and it's a suite of resources it's four resources that is it does what it says on the tin it's designed to help christians live out their faith in the workplace in a way that is um, bold and brave and wise and ties all those things together bringing our whole selves to the workplace we've got a research report we wanted to make sure that these resources were actually useful and actually practical so we did lots of of research to back up what we wrote about help us think through what was going to be the the best things to talk about there's sort of the main resource which talks about things from a biblical motivation for why we should be living it for jesus at work to to looking at what the law has to say our rights and freedoms Again, practical advice for what sharing the gospel at work might look like, how to go about that wisely, as well as tackling some of the tricky issues, the conscience issues that people face in the workplace, those difficult conversations that might come up, as well as how to seek practical support. Because the great thing is God never designed us to do any of these things on our own. Christians are always designed to be in community with other Christians. There's also a Bible study guide and a sort of practical pocketbook with reflections and reminders and encouragements for every single day. But yes, they are live on eauk.org now. You can go and find them, have a look, you can order them. And I think, I think, you know, we started working on that around the same time that we started thinking about this podcast. And I think they embody very much the same thing that we at the Evangelical Alliance, the advocacy team, We really want Christians to be going out into the public space, into culture and politics and the conversations that our peers are having and think, what what can the gospel, what can my Christian faith add to these conversations? Jesus is good news and relevant all the time, always worth talking about. And we want to help connect those dots for you. So that's what Living for Jesus at Work is about. That's what Cross Section is about. Thank you for joining us this week and we will see you next Friday. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.